Thank you very much, everybody. It's a great honor to have the Crown Prince with us. Saudi Arabia has been a very great friend and a big purchaser of equipment and lots of other things. Kushner and MBS had never even met until before the inauguration. The prince is saying, I have Kushner in my pocket because... Jared Kushner aided me in this, in this crackdown. Jared kind of looked at Saudi Arabia and said, and the guy who's going to save Saudi Arabia is Mohammed bin Salman. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who isn't a target, only a subject. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So remember the president's first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia way back in May 2017? Some pretty powerful visuals here as our president is escorted by black and white horses carrying U.S. and Saudi Arabian flags. I mean, this is pomp and circumstance, as you would presume in Riyadh, as big as it gets. And as I said, all the pageantry, that sword dance when Trump sort of shimmied around to the Bedouin drumming. The Saudi king hanging a huge gold medallion around his neck. Trump liked that. And there was Trump basking in the ghoulish light of a glowing orb. Well, that trip was the product of a curious friendship between Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, and Jared Kushner, the Jewish-American prince. Jared and MBS are BFFs, bonding over their shared hostility toward Iran, the unappreciated hardships of inherited wealth, and just being cool 30-something dudes remaking the Middle East from scratch. All right, well, let's talk about it. (laughs) Uh, Well, my guest today has gone deep into the MBS-JK relationship. He writes that it brought the Gulf of Arabia to the brink of war two weeks after Trump's visit. Dexter Filkins of The New Yorker is here with me in the studio. Dexter, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I found this completely fascinating. I mean, you go right into this sort of labyrinth of of Mideast politics, and it's many strange points of connection to the Trump administration. But just for, you know, readers who who may be as ignorant as I was before I read the piece, can you give us a little background on who MBS is, why and why he's important? Well, the place to start in Saudi Arabia is with King Abdulaziz, or Ibn Saud, as they call him. He's the father of modern Saudi Arabia. He unified the kingdom in 1932. He died in 1953, and he had something like 44 sons and 55 daughters. But he essentially— <laughs> Oh, but just one wife, right? Yeah. <laughs> essentially, he essentially decreed that he would be succeeded by his sons, one after the other. Not all of them, of course, but so I think it's seven sons have ruled consecutively since his death in 1953. And so as we sort of neared the end of the line of his sons, the tensions grew among uh, his hundreds of grandsons, uh, which one was going to get to be first crown prince and then king. I mean, that's the Game of Thrones. Jesus, there are like there are more than a hundred grandsons, right? Way more than a hundred. Yeah, yeah. hundreds. And, yeah, and and they all at least notionally have a, a claim to the throne. And so, sort of, who who was going to get the prize? And so, it was kind of a, you know, it was a most of it took place behind the scenes, but it was a it was a pretty intense scramble. And I think we now know that MBS is the one who ended up on top. How did that? How did he win? Well, he was. He was his father's favorite, his father being the king, King Salman. So, so in a way, it, was, it, was, it wasn't predetermined at all. In fact, there is one more son, 
one more of Abdulaziz's sons. His name is Mukran. And he was, when, when King Salman became king, he originally named Mukran as the crown prince. After about a year, he got him out of there, just shipped him out and brought in somebody else, Mohammed bin Nayef, who I refer to the, in the piece to as MBN. And there's a lot of alphabets here. And, but essentially it was, it was King Salman, who's still the king, uh, well over 80 years old, maneuvering, uh, essentially putting his son, trying to get his son into the pole position. And it, so MBS has been, since he came to power, came to the pole position, I think a little over a year ago, has been lauded as a modernizer. He's pro-Western in certain ways. I think he's decreed, can he just decree that women can now drive in Saudi Arabia? He has friends in Silicon Valley. Tom Friedman writes columns about how great he is. He's, yes. he's taking on the, the Islamists. I mean, do you buy that view of him? You know, kind of half and half. And I and I think there, there had been so much uh, uh, unbridled enthusiasm for him and cheerleading in the Western press that I it made me wonder if there was kind of another side to him, which in fact there was in which I was able to find. But he's he's impressive. He's he's thirty two years old. He's tall. He's gregarious. He's charismatic. He's ambitious. He's impatient. And he he's I think he's confronting the central fact of Saudi Arabia right now, which is that the state that they have built is uns- unsustainable, and they're they're going to run out of money. As as somebody uh, who, who was on the National Security Council told me, in five to seven years, Saudi Arabia is broke um, because the the welfare state is you know, immense and incredibly generous. Everything is subsidized. But all that was built on the idea that oil would be expensive, you know, that it would be $100 a barrel, and it's like $60 a barrel now. So somebody's got to come in and save the monarchy um, or say, and, and, and try to turn this big aircraft carrier in another direction because if they, if they don't do that, uh, they're going to run into really severe problems very soon. So he's thinking long term about exactly this problem. How do you have a Saudi Arabia run by the by the House of Saud without oil or without oil being uh, having the value it's had in the past? And he seems to be taking on this corruption and decadence in the royal family. I mean, he locked all these people who I guess were his relatives up in the Ritz Hotel, which was kind of hilarious, but probably not so funny if you were one of them being locked up there. But at the right. same time, he seems to, in other ways, exemplify this decadence and and corruption. Yes, yes. I mean, absolutely. He, on one hand, is trying to reform the the economy, open it up. He's trying to reform the culture. He's letting women drive. He wants women to come into the workplace and have a more active role in society. He's kind of handcuffing the the really conservative clerics. The one thing he's not doing is uh, talking about political reform. This entire project is intended to save the House of Saud and to, and to keep the House of Saud in power uh, indefinitely. So there's no talk of democracy on the table. And his best bud in the United States is Jared Kushner. They, Amazing. They seem to have formed a, a kind of relationship. Kushner has been Paid back and forth many times to Saudi Arabia, probably responsible for Trump making his first foreign trip there to this Islamic summit thing they had. What's that? What's going on with that alliance? It's it's pretty amazing. I mean, the story behind it is amazing. They had Kushner and MBS had never even met uh, before the until before the inauguration, and 
a couple people, uh, including Steve Bannon, described for me like how how it all came about. And they said, literally, we we got a map out of the Middle East. We kind of unrolled it on the table, and we looked at it. It's a disaster. It's, uh, the Middle East is on fire everywhere. Iran is on the march. Lebanon is lost to the Iranians. Iraq is lost to the Iranians. Uh, Syria is lost to the Iranians. What do we have? You know, um, and they said our, our two pillars are Israel and Saudi Arabia. So we are going to do everything we can to strengthen those two. And and then within that, Jared kind of looked at Saudi Arabia and said, and the guy who's going to save Saudi Arabia is Mohammed bin Salman and MBS, uh, the the young the young prince, not not unlike Jared himself, and and he's going to be the change agent is is what they called him. And so at the time. MBS was not the crown prince. He wasn't in the pole position. He he was he was the deputy crown prince. And so there was a there was a very uh, again quiet but intense rivalry going on between MBS and the the man who was the crown prince at the time, Mohammed bin Nayef. And so there began this intense struggle, into which uh, I think it's fair to say that the Trump administration inserted itself directly to try to influence events and essentially make. MBS and to ensure MBS ensure that he becomes crown prince. So but it's a pretty 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 intense uh, short period of time, but very intense. But there are other players in the Trump administration at various stages, Tillerson, intelligence agencies, who don't think it's necessarily such a good idea to get in bed with MBS because, you know, this could come out a number of ways and the United States has to deal with whoever runs Saudi Arabia. And there's also this Saudi-Qatari conflict. Explain that a little bit because there's just been these – I mean, one of the things I love about your story – Dexter is all these what the hell stories I've been reading <laughs> in the paper that I just you just can't understand it. You you create a context and explain at least in a very plausible theory what but that might have been about. But what's why did Saudi Arabia blockade Qatar? Is well, that, do you say Qatar or Qatar? I never know. I say Qatar, but yeah, yeah there's Qatar, there's yeah <laughs> Qatar, uh, Qatar. But I know when you stand back and, and look at the map now, it's um, MBS has tried to overthrow the government in Lebanon. Uh, he's bombing Yemen, and he tried to overthrow the government in Qatar. And this was uh, not long after the Riyadh summit, not coincidentally, I think. So it's right. So Trump goes to Saudi Arabia, and two weeks later, Saudi Arabia announces this blockade. And essentially, it looks like there's going to be a war with Saudi Arabia and yes. Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates on one side, and Qatar on the other. Yeah, and, and Qatar's this, like, really strange place. It's super small. It You, you land at the airport. It looks like Boca Raton. Um, <laughs> they're, they're sitting on this— they're not sitting on not this, as many Jews. <laughs> not as many Jews. They're sitting on like this kind of infinitely large uh, natural gas field. And so they're so fantastically wealthy. Um, I, I mean, I think their sovereign wealth fund has $300 billion in it. And it's like they literally have to come to New York every year to kind of search for places to invest it. So, but among the things they spend their money on is uh, Al Jazeera, which drives uh, the the Saudi and Emirati monarchies crazy because they're always criticizing them. They spend their money on the Muslim Brotherhood all across the Middle East. Um, and so they, they're like troublemakers. And they just, you know, they're a tiny country with tons of money, and they're just stirring it up everywhere. And so the, the Saudis and, and also the Emiratis, they've been wanting to go after Qatar for years. And somebody in the Obama administration said to me, everything you're seeing happening right now, they wanted to do when we were in power, but we were basically holding them back. And so now it's essentially when when Trump and Jared came in, 
they empowered him. They, they gave said, him a green light. And, and how do it. you think that actually happened? You think this is part of Jared's bright idea? I mean, it's just the idea of this this prince, American princeling blundering around, basically not knowing what the hell he's doing, but playing with war and peace in the Middle East and saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Saudi Arabia, go ahead. Sure, blockade cutter. What do you think happened? You think he just said, um, Dad, uh, I'm I'm working on this. Is that cool? Or I think, I think uh, I'm trying. First of all, I think it's pretty clear they gave a green light to something it's not exactly clear what the something they approved was uh bannon publicly in his speech said uh look it's no coincidence uh that you're seeing a blockade of cutter come a couple of weeks after the riyadh summit it's and not Steve a bannon talked to you for this story yeah this is basically yeah. the scenario he described it. he was quoted on the record in your piece yeah and he didn't deny it and he you know he was kind of playful about it but that's it's not really clear you can kind of imagine a conversation and as best I could I could determine, there was a conversation that went something like, look, we want you guys, the status quo in the Middle East isn't working. So let's let's shake it up. And so I think MBS and and to a certain extent the, the Emiratis uh said, Hey, that's great. Uh we, we got a we got a little plan going for Qatar. And and you could see everybody kind of light up and say, Go for it, guys, and w- without maybe talking about it. Now I don't know that, and that's me speculating, but I can certainly say I don't think the White House was terribly shocked when the Qatar events started happening, the blockade. Looks like maybe Saudi Arabia was going to invade Qatar. But the rest of the U.S. government was, like, dumbfounded. Uh, Nobody else knew. Uh, The Defense Department, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis uh, was stunned. Tillerson was completely dumbfounded. Uh, So you had this kind of bizarre, uh, you know, the U.S. government is at odds with with itself um, because the White House is kind of just doing its thing and not telling anybody. So Because Jared and his father-in-law are like Laurel and Hardy uh, playing geopolitics. Yeah, well, I mean, that, it there, really looks like that. Yeah, I mean, there's that too. Uh, there's this really curious moment, like a month before the blockade. As I had mentioned, the, 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 the Cuttery finance minister every year comes to Manhattan goes to the St. Regis Hotel, rents out a big room. They take all the furniture out of it. And, you know, they're looking for places to put their money because uh, they have so much of it. And it's literally coming out of the ground. And so they, they, they talk to all investors. And one of the investors that came in 2017 was Charles Kushner. And he came with a plan to essentially rescue uh, the big building on 666 Fifth Avenue that has a mortgage that's due, I think, next year. It's a mortgage of about $1.2 billion. We've talked about that a <laughs> bunch of times on the show. I mean, Charles Kushner, the one who went to jail, and they're, you know, they're yeah. hugely underwater and facing a very hugely tight deadline on this property yeah. that Jared massively overpaid for. And basically, they needed a bailout. So Charles Kushner goes with his son in the White House, to to see who is it? The, he sees the finance minister of Qatar, the finance he, minister, and says, "Would we have an investment opportunity?" Yeah, and we have a plan. Look, here's our plan to kind of turn this whole thing around. But we need a billion dollars. Um, so they asked for a billion dollar with a B. Um, and I had this very kind of animated conversation with one of the finance professionals, how we say, who was who was in the room, uh, and. And he said to me, uh, we, we could have bought the building. Uh, yeah, we, they we got a billion dollars. Why, we got why, the money. Why didn't you know? they? I mean, He's, actually. It's interesting because he said, look, we tried, you know, every which way to make that thing work. And they were like, we, we don't have that kind of time horizon. Like, that thing is never going to make money. It's never going to happen. It was a terrible investment. And it will always be. 
But it might have been a good investment in not being invaded by Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he actually said that to me. And he said, here's my question. If we had lent them a billion dollars, Charles Kushner, would there have been a boycott or a, bl- a blockade of Qatar? I don't think so. Um, raises the question. Three weeks later, or a month later, where the Saudis and the Emiratis, with the backing of the White House, is, pr- is practically at war with Qatar. And, what, and this blockade is still going on. Still going on. Like, I, f- I flew to Qatar from Saudi Arabia. It took me, like, 12 hours. And it, it's, like, down the street. Um, you know, I had to fly to Kuwait and then get another flight and then go to— and, and, You know, the whole thing took, like, two days, and it should have taken about an hour and a half. And there, are there, you know, things in the stores? I mean, what does a blockade actually mean? Does it mean they're not getting imports? And- no, it makes their life, like, slightly more cumbersome because the, this is their neighbors. Um, but cutters, they've, they've got money to burn, so so they're, they're okay. I think there was a genuine concern on the part of the Pentagon and in the State Department that the Saudis and the Emiratis were going to invade, and they were going to take out the emir of Qatar, probably put in, like, some kind of puppet, probably take the $300 billion sovereign wealth fund. They were so concerned they put a drone up over the over the border to watch it. Um, and they had to get on the phone and they had to say, like, can't do this. And I and I think, again, it looks like the White House gave it gave a green light. And it what's what's absolutely not clear is whether President Trump had any idea that the most important military base in the Middle East is in Qatar. Um, <laughs> it's Al died military base there's 10,000 American soldiers there. It's the forward it, – it's the command and control center for the entire uh, American military in the Middle East. And Trump yeah. might just not have known that. Well, you know, I Pretty mean, g- given the last person he talked to syndrome, he and Jared have been spending a lot of time talking to the Saudis and the Emiratis and getting one side of the story. And I'm sure the, the Saudis weren't reminding anybody of that fact. No, and, and I think – you know, apparently, as I'm told, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis just, you know, went, he was apoplectic. Um, we have a military base there. Like, we can't have a war in Qatar sanctioned by us, uh, sanctioned by the United States government. It's insane. And and so uh, there's another really interesting moment, um, which is which is recounted in my piece, where I think it's midnight, and it's as the blockade is beginning— there's the senior State Department official in Washington in charge of the Middle East gets a phone call from the Emirati ambassador, and he says, um, we're, we're, we're launching a blockade. And so the, the State Department official goes nuts and says, what are you doing? This is crazy. Uh, you can't do this. And as I'm told, the Emirati ambassador said, uh, have you talked to the White House? Um, yeah, we ran it past the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not on speaking terms with its own Secretary of State. Oh, at that man. Point. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's like, the you know, the White House is running that way and like the State Department's running the other and the Pentagon's. It was just and like here we are. So, um, again, we've got just in this very short, short period of time, you have Saudi Arabia trying to overthrow the government in Lebanon, Qatar, creating havoc. In Yemen, all of which I think is kind of directed directed one way, which is towards Iran, which is you know the main enemy. Yeah. Um, but it's like uh, it's pretty rocky, pretty rocky twelve months. Could this invasion still happen? I mean, is of it? Yeah. I mean, is it if they if they think they have the backing of the White House, or have they been effectively checked by the uh, by the more other parts of the defense establishment? Yeah, I think I think it's unlikely now because I basically everybody woke up and said like, what what on earth is happening here? And so even I think President Trump and you know who knows what kind of conversation preceded this, but he had to get on the phone and say, calm down, guys. 
So to to the Saudis, uh, Qatar is is little Satan, but big Satan is <laughs> Iran, right? That's the main enemy, and they are they're very much opposed Obama's nuclear deal with Iran, yes. and they've been bolstering Jared and Trump's hostility to that deal and encouraging them to unwind it. What do they see as a positive outcome from that? I mean, they, you know, the people who support the deal say, well, this is preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear power. And if you undo the deal, they're more likely to become a nuclear power sooner. I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't want that. What they really don't want is Iran to become a nuclear power. So what explains their opposition to the deal? It's really, it's really um, I, I think it's broader than just the deal itself. Um, when, when they look at the map, they say, look, Lebanon, that's an, that's an Iranian base. Syria, taken over by the Iranians. Iraq, where, where the United States, States spent so much uh, money and, and lives, that's essentially controlled by the Iraqis. And, 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 sorry, by the Iranians. And Yemen, uh, now, now the Iranians are in Yemen. And so the Saudis feel like they're being encircled. Um, and so they really, I mean, it, it's, to them, this is a, an existential threat. They've, they've, the crown prince has been very explicit about this. He said, the ideology of the Iranian revolution is very similar to that of the Nazis. And they're, they're coming after us and they want to take over Saudi Arabia. And, and so they see it as a kind of fight to the, to the death. And, and so as to the nuclear deal, I, to me, it, it's, it, it begs the question, because if you, if you put the deal aside, you have to ask, are you ready to go to war? You know, I, and, and I think, you know, that's where we come in. The, um, you know, I know the Saudis pay for pretty high-priced PR, but I'm not sure they're getting great advice by, by saying that the Iranians are worse than the Nazis and worse than Hitler. They, this is a recurring theme of theirs, and it's a, it's a, it seems a little, a little hyperbolic. Kind of. I, th- I think they believe it. it it's, um, I, I sat with— um, Thomas Saban, who's the minister for Gulf Affairs at his farmhouse in outside Riyadh, and he went on and on about uh, the Nazis and the and the Persians. And so, you know, this is this is for and them. He gave you some very large dates. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and fortunately, it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't the Saudi summer. Um, <laughs> but I think they feel empowered, and and they they have felt empowered by by Trump and by Kushner because everybody's on the same page. And even when you take the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks into which MBS has also inserted himself, that's like, let's ram something down the Palestinians' throat. Let's get them to take this deal, take it or leave it. We'll tie that up. And then that, with, with that done, we'll have Israel and the whole Arab world will form a united front against Iran. To contain them, and I think that's kind of that's the playbook that both the Saudis and the White House are kind of looking at right now. And the Saudis would accept peace with Israel as a price of that, right? If they can check Iran, because they've been, so. they seem to be strangely supportive of these moves, like moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, and these you know very pro-Israel things that Kushner and Trump want to do. They're okay with that. That's not their agenda. They've got a different agenda. It's It's a bargaining chip. It's amazing. I mean, the number of people who said to me, MBS doesn't, couldn't care less about Jerusalem, couldn't care less about the Palestinians. If in fact, I mean, he, he really took this peace plan to the Palestinian leadership. And I mean, it's Jerusalem's off the table. All the settlements in the West Bank are ratified. Very limited autonomy for the Palestinians. I mean, the only place you can find a deal like that is like on the rightward fringe of in Israel. And and here you have uh, the leader of 
the largest economy in the Middle East, trying to trying to carry that carrying that water for the White House to do that. It's amazing. And Dexter, how does Syria figure in all this? I mean, what do, what do the Saudis think about Syria? I think when the Saudis look at Syria, they see another country lost to the Iranians, and so it's it's part of this kind of sphere of Iranian influence that stretches basically from the Mediterranean, Lebanon with Hezbollah all the way back to the Iranian border with Iraq. And Syria is like a piece of that. And so as, as this person in, on the National Security Council said to me, uh, we, we looked at the, the, the northern tier of the Middle East is basically lost. Uh, it's lost to the Iranians. And I, I think the Saudis see it that way too. Is, and is, did Saudi Arabia think they've lost Lebanon? Because it, you, you describe in your piece this weird episode when Saad Hariri, the Lebanese prime minister, was basically kidnapped. And according to your reporting, he was being held by the Saudis and slapped around like they were actually slapping his face, convincing him to do what they wanted. And what they want is for him to be a stronger anti-Hezbollah, in effect, anti-Iranian proxy figure. Or, or, to, or to get out of the way. Yeah. Uh, and they, I think there was, a, there was a plan to bring his, his brother in. But yeah, I mean, it was absolutely shocking. They essentially took a sitting prime minister of another country put him in a room and said, quit, uh, and here's your speech. Go out and read it on television. And he did. And, and I think when the Saudis look at Lebanon, they see, look, we've, we've been pouring money into this, into this country for years, and the most powerful actor in the country by far, political party and military force, is Hezbollah, um, which is, you know, our, our mortal enemy. It's essentially an arm of the Iranian government. Yeah, we're not getting anything out of this. Uh, so, so uh, But do they think they can overturn Hezbollah in Lebanon, even if they can't check Iran's influence in Syria? I, I think they feel, I think the sort of grabbing onto Hariri and dragging him back to Riyadh and forcing him to resign or trying to force him to resign, that, that was just a measure of how frustrated they are. I don't, I, I don't think there are any good options for them. Hezbollah is, Hezbollah is too strong. It's too late for that. They got to be reckoned with. So... What's the you you spend decades, Dexter, covering the Middle East? You know, whenever I read your work or or, or, or other in depth stories about it, I just come away thinking this is so complicated. The people immersed in it barely understand it. And then you think what happens to people who you know are are kind of clueless about it. It's what happened to the Bush administration, right? You you can blunder into something you don't oh, understand. Is that is that the big concern about the Trump administration that they're just in so far over their heads that they could blunder into war, they could blunder into creating a catastrophe without having any idea what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jared I think said at one point publicly and he was he was talking about the Israel-Palestine problem. He said, "Look, I don't care about the past." And I mean, and to say that in the Middle East is, uh, it's shocking. I mean, the, pa- the past is all there is. Um, you know, history is everywhere. It's in the room. Um, and, you know, the memories there go back a thousand years or more. And you can't, you can't think like that. And, and my concern now is that you have, instead of having people in the U.S. government like, say, Tillerson and Mattis, uh, I mean, Mattis is still there, and H.R. McMaster, now it's John Bolton and, and Mike Pompeo. Um, and so I, I think if anything, MBS is going to feel like he can be even more aggressive uh, in the region or more aggressive in particular towards the Iranians. And so I think I think we're probably in for a pretty rough ride. Because basically there's no really responsible authority to check something they do that might be really radical. 
Well, I mean, I think those guys have been very clear in the White House. They've been very clear about about confronting the Iranians, pushing the Iranians back. The number of people who use the phrase to me, you know, in the White House and in the administration, we are going to roll back the Iranians in the Middle East, roll back. I mean, I, I heard that a half dozen times talking to people. And, you know, good luck. But, you know, that that's a little scary. You know, I, I hope they know what they're in for. Yeah, it's not just uh, it'd be great to roll roll back the Iranians. The question is what gets rolled over when you roll them back. Exactly. And and I and how do they respond as well? Yeah. Yeah. I've been speaking with Dexter Filkins of the New Yorker. Dexter, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks so much. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. I am really excited about this slow burn live show that's going to happen on April 19th at 7 p.m. on Lexington Avenue in New York. Leon Nafok is going to host Bob Woodward and Virginia Heffernan and other guests. It's going to be a really interesting conversation about Watergate and its implications for the present day. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.